Have either of you realised the problem with our current scenario as we try and talk like characters written by Kevin Williamson? What problem? I'm very content in our pseudo-quasi-happy existence. We're all the horror nerds. And? You, you think that puts us high on the survivability scale? Yes, because it is a postmodern horror where all the nerds survive. And the odds are strong that actually the killer is one of us. It's a good point. It is always someone you know. Welcome to Hello Sydney, a limited podcast series supported by Paramount that cuts deep into one of the most iconic horror franchises. This series, we're slicing and dicing our way through each movie in the Scream series in anticipation of the brand new Scream, coming soon to UK cinemas. I'm Mike Munzer, producer and podcaster, and as ever, I'm joined by my co-hosts, writer and broadcaster Anna Bogatskaya. Hello. And journalist and broadcaster Louise Blaine. Hello. And this week we're jumping forward 10 years to talk remakes, found footage and torture porn with Scream 4 from 2011. Just a quick reminder that we will be spoiling Scream 4 from 2011, so if you haven't seen the movie, or if you haven't watched it in a while, go give it a little rewatch before listening to our discussion. So, guys, the tagline for Scream 4 was New Decade, New Rules. And my first question for you is, now that we're in an era of iPhones, of live blogging, of vlogging, of streaming, all of that kind of thing, what would a live stream of your typical day look like? It would be so boring, Mike. (laughs) (laughs) You'd watch me make coffee the very same way every single day. (laughs) And then there'd probably be a bit of Animal Crossing and then I would go to work and you'd just look at a screen for the rest of the day. That would be the most miserable thing for everybody to live stream. I do, I, I do think Twitch streamers now, they perform an admirable role and work exceptionally hard to create content that people actually want to watch on a consistent basis. So I have nothing but respect for live streamers. They, they, they work hard. Anna? It would probably be a very intense close-up of my cat just crying for attention the entire day. <laughs> no matter what I was doing, he would still upstage me. He'd still be like, oh, is she working? Is she recording a podcast is she doing some radio is she doing a Q&A nah don't care there's a fluffy little fat cat here right in your face so I'm just gonna that's the content the we want that. that's the content that's we the content want that everybody wants yeah yeah. that would be my live stream it would be my cat annoying me that's I mean I would subscribe that's fair <laughs> what about you Mike mine would be very boring too it would be a mix of well I suppose it would be a mix of watching horror films staring at a computer screen full of emails and occasionally rabbits running You're in really and out the rabbits yeah yeah so there's there's a bit of something there. There's a bit. I of love that combo fun. of all the horror that we are watching the adorable pets and, we yeah, all love. and cute fluffy pets. That pretty <laughs> much sums us up. Cam. <laughs> okay, so Scream Four from 2011. Louise, give us a 20 second plot synopsis. Your time starts now. Okay, we're back in the town of Woodsboro where everything from Scream took place. Uh, we are back with we are with Sydney's relatives and Sydney is coming back to Woodsboro to do her book tour which is talking about Out of the Darkness to talk about her trauma and her progression. <laughs> but, of course, Ghostface is back. 
Very good. Great. Very good. Um, so we've we've jumped over a decade from Scream 3. Everyone thought Scream 3 was the final chapter, of course. Um, and we've got this kind of new beginning. Um, Anna, what did you think of Scream 4? How does it differ to you from what we've seen previously? So the really interesting thing about Scream 4, right, especially compared to Scream 3, which we mentioned in our last episode, is that now it's about teenagers again. Yes. We've got our core trio of characters, Sydney, in the best place of her life, I'd say, which, you know, great for her, living her life, finally also monetizing her trauma, just like everybody else did before her. But, you know, get your coin. I support this. (laughs) And coming back to Woodsboro, making her peace with her town, making her peace with everything, with, with the culture of Ghostface. But we get introduced to this whole new set of teenage characters. So while Dewey, Gail and Sydney are obviously well into their adulthood and we care deeply for them, we now get to see more contemporary teenagers. It's not the teenagers of 1996, it's the teenagers teenagers of 2011. And they have a completely different approach to horror movies, which I'm sure we will touch on. They have a completely different approach to technology, which is in a radically different place. (laughs) To the fax machines or the (laughs) MS-DOS 911 calls. (laughs) We've gone from the MS-DOS 911 messaging to live streaming your entire day. Yes. Um, And also, they have a completely different way of relating to one another. So the dynamics between them are are also vastly different. So we kind of get to see the, the teenagers that have grown up with the legend of Gail, Dewey and Sydney. Louise, we've got Kevin Williamson back writing. Obviously, he wasn't there for Scream 3. And now we're back with teenagers. We're back with Kevin Williamson teenagers. Can you feel that return of Williamson and his Williamsonness? You can feel Williamsonness immediately. <laughs> the Williamsonosity is high. <laughs> it's drenching it, Williamsonosity. It, yeah, Williamsonosity is there. And I think it's very welcome. I mean, I l- love Scream 4 for it feels like because it's back in Woodsboro because you've still got our our main lot that's very welcoming and you understand that but then these new characters are just absurdly they're attractive they're smart talking they live in as you say Anna they live in a world where Woodsboro happens so they live in Woodsboro we even see uh, as sort of I think it's it's uh, people have done it as graffiti they've put ghost face on all of the lampposts which we see when we come back to the you know we see Sydney pull up in a car in a street in Woodsboro to promote her book surrounded by ghost faces on lampposts and that's immediately saying we know what kind of world this is in mm-hmm. and also I think it does a really good job of introducing those characters as well um, obviously we love Kirby she's just the most magnificent character but we've got Jill who is related to Sydney which basically means that Sydney's life has fully affected hers. We kind of feel like she's a sort of Sydney substitute. So we get these immediate substitutes, don't we? We see reflections. We see jealous Sydney. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have the the film guys are Randy. We've got all of these reflections. Deputy uh, Judy is Dewey. So yeah. you have, you've got, we understand these sort of cookie cutter versions of characters that we actually have two of not in the same way as Scream 3. So I think that's a that's a nice welcoming return. Yeah, we've got the next generation, haven't we? Which is something really nice. Um, and it's the first time we've been back in actual Woodsboro since Scream 1. Were you pleased, Anna, to be back in the town of Woodsboro? Yeah, especially because we get to go back to Woodsboro High School. Yes! And I'm yeah. really, really a fan of the of the new teenagers, especially kind of the, the, rand- <laughs> the new generation of Randys. And what I found was really fun is that actually 
everyone is a little bit roundy in this in stream for <laughs> What a sentence. What a sentence. Accurate on so many levels. (laughs) But specifically with our with the presidents of the movie, excuse me, Cinema Club of Woodsboro High. That's right, if you please. Exactly. Um, Robbie and Charlie, who are just a new take on Randy and a new take of movie fandom and a new take on horror fandom, but also we get Kirby, who completely holds her own and kind of, you know, and there's other characters as well who there's not just one nerd. Everyone is a little bit nerdy because I think that also mirrors the how mainstream nerd culture became and how also kind of movie nerdom became much more accessible because of how the internet changed fandom and because of how accessible it was to know trivia, to know facts, to memorize directors and running times and release years and screenwriters, to kind of know all this stuff and not have it be lord it over anyone else it was something that everybody could be a fan of and everybody could partake in and i think this movie kind of really dials into that in a way in a similar way that it dialed into randy being the blockbuster nerd who was memorizing the the back of the vhs's but nobody else really did that and he loved that that was his that was it his way of identifying himself but now no one is really that special in that regard. No, and also it's kind of cool. It's almost cool to be a geek in, yeah. in 2011 as it is now. Thank God for us three. It's, yeah. it's, <laughs> it's all right to be a movie nerd, right? And you got the feeling, like you say, Anna, that Randy was this slight outsider because he was this this movie nerd. And uh, and now I think that's really kind of emphasized in, the, emphasized in the role of Kirby, isn't it? Who is this incredibly cool, hot character that is also this Randy-type movie nerd, right? Um, and uh, like you said, but everyone is a, is a nerd. Everyone has this incredible movie knowledge. They've all grown up in the town where the Stab movies began. Mm-hmm. So they all have this knowledge and love of horror and all of the various meta levels of what what works, what doesn't. Are we in a post-postmodern world now where people don't want the meta stuff anymore? And they give us some really interesting new commentaries on that, don't they, I think? But so the progression of the Stab series. I mean, at one, I think it's interesting that Stab has clearly carried on post-Roman. Yes. You know, there yes. was at one point there was a talk in a boardroom where someone's like, "Well, he was a killer, but we're this movie makes money, so we're continuing to do that." So we've got the progression of the stab series, which we see in the cold open progress mm-hmm. through. But yes. then a little bit later on, they're like, "Oh, that one had time travel; it was rubbish, or that one was this." <laughs> and I think it's almost Scream commenting on, "We could have done that, mm. but we didn't do that. We waited ten years. We didn't go to space. Mm. We didn't go crazy. We didn't go Ghostface versus Freddy versus Jason." You've just got Scream 4 now and it's waited 10 years. So I think that's almost a sly, like, stabs progressed. We haven't. You're getting the good version. And it's also a very sly, underhanded commentary on the state of horror in the same way that Scream 1 and Scream 2 were commenting on the state of genre as a a whole while also subverting it. Scream 4 is also commenting on a very different horror panorama right Mm -hmm. because horror had really evolved it's always evolving but it got into a very particular place in the early 2000s so i think scream 4 is a very direct um reflection and kind of satirizing the state of horror in the 2000s so where was genre at the time what was the vibe of the for horror movies in the 2000s. But it's funny because we talked about how Scream 1 obviously was was a reflection of where horror was, a bit of a dead zone for slashers in the early 90s. And then Scream 2 and 3 were in the boom of this slasher resurgence thanks to Scream 1. So they had to kind of keep up with what was going on there. Scream 4 
like you said, horror had completely changed in that decade in between and the slasher boom that Scream had created had kind of died away again. We were in an era of a lot of remakes, <laughs> which is commented on, but also horror got nastier as well. Horror got gorier. It got more brutal. We had the Saw movies, the Hostel movies. We had found footage. Uh, everything got a bit grittier and grislier. It didn't have that sort of sheen, uh, maybe, that the 90s kind of poppy 90s horror movies did as well so scream 4 kind of really sort of comments on that doesn't it i think and reintroduces the sheen like mm. it looks like scream i think that's really important like if you especially for for talking about we've obviously rewatched a lot but you feel visually it just is part of that world yes. where actually if we looked at the if we looked at the 2000s there was a lot of green a lot know? of green as someone with lights behind their television would be like oh there's a lot of green in these movies but that's not what scream has it's mm-hmm. very traditional it still looks like that it's in the same res- the ratio etc so it looks yeah. very slick like you mentioned horror movies in the two in this decade before scream 4 had turned very gritty they were not as concerned with characters they were not as concerned with dialogue which as we've been mentioning throughout the whole the previous episodes and especially noting that Kevin Williams and the screenwriter is back in this in Scream 4 the dialogue has always been such a central point of the Scream franchise and that comes back full throttle here again and that's completely in contrast with the horror movies that we had become accustomed to in the decade prior there's also a lot of remakes of foreign language horror films which again are very visually led they're not so much screenwriter led and the violence in Scream has always been gory, but it has always really toyed the line with humor, too, which horror in the 2000s never really allowed that much. It was always a competition almost with itself of how creative the kills could get, how nasty could they get, how, for lack of a better word, extreme could we go, how much can we push the sensibility further. And and a lot of it was also thinking about franchising in a similar way to kind of going back to the 80s, which, you know, we talked in the very first episode of of this podcast of the slasher slump, as you called it, Mike, of the the very revolutionary um, granddaddies of horror films like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, like um, Nightmare on Elm Street, like Halloween being franchised to death. Scream always avoided that. And I think it's commenting on that as well, because in the 2000s, kind of the same thing happened. A lot of these films were remade and also then continued to be franchised. Franchises were always at the at the forefront of a lot of these films. So if a film really broke out and was successful, it would get franchised immediately. Not just have a sequel or two, but thought about as, can we squeeze out seven, five, ten films out of this? <laughs> can we remake this and squeeze out ten films out of the remake? At the expense of fun. Yeah, at the total expense of fun, which is what Scream manages to balance so well, is it's like this is fun. It's not, you know, you, that cold opener is it's funny and violent and postmodern and silly and oh, there's more people killing each other and oh, but and it's all commenting every single stage of it is saying, well, no, Saw's full of violence and it's yes. it, the, all the commentary there is addressing that head on, but never at the expense as we start the movie proper of the characters that we build. And also, before we go into the cold open, this is also in a post-scary movie world. Yes. So I know I mentioned it in the first episode, but this is also after a decade of parodies of Scream and the films that it helped usher in. And I think that cold open, perhaps this is a moment where we can really talk about it, really directly taps into that because it is not just one cold open, it is three. Are you fucking kidding me? What? 
That was so fucking stupid. Pure horseshit. The death of horror right here in front of us. Yeah, it's really reckoning with its own legacy, isn't it? Because like mm-hmm. we talked about, Scream was such a game changer for the genre and Scream 2 and 3 were still really kind of made within that bubble. And I think Scream 4 now has the distance where it's able to look back and go, look at what we created with Scream. We created a whole new subgenre and Scream 4 is kind of doing that, isn't it? And yeah, you're right, this cold open where we begin in Stab 6, right? And uh, then it turns out to be characters watching it in stab seven and then we go into the quote-unquote real world of the film where characters are killed by Ghostface for real um and this this kind of really fun idea like you guys have already mentioned of franchises kind of running themselves into the ground in each of these little entries in each of these little segments we've got two quite famous well-known actresses they're usually they're, they're sort of starry cameos and all of them are commenting on the genre in different ways aren't they and it's it's really interesting I like the Stab movies. They're scarier. It's not aliens or zombies or little Asian ghost girls. There's something real about a guy with a knife who just snaps. The fact that it's all women as well is really interesting. I think mm-hmm. that's been a very that's that's been a very definitive point on that way that they really push, especially talking about Kirby mm-hmm. and how she can hold her own. Yes. The start is very much women who can hold their own who are about to be slaughtered but can hold their own. Yes. <laughs> like I think that's it's very it's very pointed, I think. It is. And also another really interesting thing I find when I rewatch the cold open and the whole rest of the film is that it's super gory. There is yes. a lot of blood in this movie and we've talked about how horror got a lot more violent and nasty in the 2000s and I think it's partly that it's partly maybe that censorship has relaxed for example compared to when we talked about Scream 3 when Mm -hmm. everything was being heavily censored and you get the feeling where's Craven is getting to have so much fun with this he goes so much more extreme with some of these set pieces and I I love the kind of the yes it's still got the the sheen the glossiness the fun the great characters that we all want from a Scream film but it also does bring that 2000s gore as well which it I really enjoy it also brings the 2000 sassiness to it because in the you know after we get the fake cold opens of Scream, Stab 6 and Stab 7 when we get the real ones it's essentially a reenactment of Casey's murder from the very first Scream but in this point she not only knows what's going to happen she also completely challenges Ghostface like I'm sorry I'm no dumb blonde I've got a 4.0 GPA and an IQ of 135 <laughs> like what are you going to do about it yeah so good it's you know and it, and it's a really fun way of setting up right we're back in a scream film we're back in the scream world we're back in woodsboro um but things are going to be sort of a little bit different i suppose before we get onto all of the new characters which we've mentioned but let's talk a bit about sydney gale and dewey and where they're at whereabouts are these three at in their lives now so sydney is arriving back in woodsboro to promote her book she's there with her book publicist mm-hmm. um played by so- alison brie yes fantastic hero so the fact that she they mention the fact that Gail Weathers had written the book on her. A number, I think they say a number of books on her. Is that what they, they basically mm. everyone knows everything about Sydney, but not from her perspective. So mm-hmm. she's taking control of her own life for once. But Gail, on the other hand, is trying to write, but she's stuck. She's literally watching that flashing cursor, which I think we can all identify with. Oh, I yeah. so related yep. to it's, Gail putting the font up to like forty. Yep, to try and, and fill a to page. <laughs> A page, Gail. <laughs> Trying to write the first chapter of her first fictional work. I think that was a That's very it. interesting point. I mean, again, kind of a writerly nod, right? A journalist, a nonfiction writer, one who's found fame become the opera of true crime in this fantastical world, trying to write a story that's not taking anybody else's story and coming up with nothing. 
but she's yeah. also not just she's stuck in that but she's also in Woodsboro she's married to Dewey they're back there you know everything that previously they'd sort of push and pulled over for the previous you know yeah. entries in the series but I think Dewey has kind of the biggest sort of suit up sort of he is now yeah. head of the police he's now he's he's almost got this kind of much older sort of swarthiness to him where he's like the dependable police chief mm. you know I think there's something that he's no longer the Dewey of kind of com- he's got the comedy element a little bit it's an undertone but there's a real sort of sense of he is older he is taking control of this he has this kind of underling deputy judy who kind of just clearly loves him and wants to make him cakes endlessly not just for cake but i think like watching his progression is huge i think he has the almost the biggest leap up yeah. because he's he's really stepped up and he now takes on almost a different sort of characteristic like trope within Scream 4. He's not the comic relief anymore. He's not the the object of derision. He's now the dependable figure of authority. And it's interesting the way that they've kind of reversed the 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 roles of these three characters because in the previous films it was it was Dewey and Sydney that were struggling in one way or another right with with being able to get on with their lives um and and gail was kind of going off and achieving all the success at the expense of those two in in some ways and it's completely reversed now right where sydney and dewey are both in places that they seem happy they seem to be at where they want to be and gail is the one that's really struggling right with this Mm -hmm. kind of small town life she's kind of she's yeah she's kind of distanced herself from that career and um is sort of trying to find her place and what she does now at this point in her life yeah and also trying to make amends with Sydney. I think there's a really interesting moment when they meet each other again and there's a tension there. There's a tension brewing. Gail, I'm glad you came. Congratulations, Sydney. I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but I know where you can get one. <laughs> it's not overtly stated what happened but you can I mean it's always been tense between those two Mm -hmm. and I think Sydney finally taking back control of her story taking back control of her narrative and essentially kind of besting Gail at the thing that Gail made money off is a very pointed choice the fact that she goes to her to her book launch, to her reading in Woodsboro, which is met with rapturous applause is and is kind of a little bit jealous because Gail has always profited from other people's stories and she doesn't really have one to tell herself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think their dynamic is so interesting, isn't it? Because obviously they hated each other. They were literally punching each other in the first one and they've they've been through so much together. And you kind of feel that, don't you? That this time has passed, that they know each other really well and that, yeah, they're never going to be best friends, but they have a sort of respect for each other at this point, I think, don't yeah, they? Yeah, they have that dynamic. But I do think a lot of that tension is from that I'm right, I'm trying to write a book and I can't write anything and you've yeah. just published one. <laughs> like, yes, I do think how it's, dare you it's be quite nice tour. to have it as that base thing, not like drama around who's killing mm-hmm. who, but genuinely like... You have a published book, don't yeah. you? <laughs> like, I used to do this. What? What <laughs> yeah. is this? Yeah, it's great. Um, and then we've got our our generation of newbies, which we've touched upon already. Um, Kirby, we've got Jill, and we've got a whole bunch of others. Um, what do you think generally of this cast of characters? Do you have any faves? Kirby. Kirby. <laughs> I mean, it's got to be Kirby. It's got to be Kirby. Yeah. Also played by Hayden Panettiere, who was really big at the time because of Heroes, which I watched when it was out, and and I loved her character. So it's really really fun to see this this cool mean girl in this high school who is also a horror nerd, and so completely belittles all the boys who try to outquiz her. Even belittles Ghostface on the phone when he tries to outquiz her. 
good for Kirby. Also, she sports just this amazing leather jacket. The, so. the jacket's so good. Great jacket. So good. She's she's one of the best characters in the whole franchise, yes. I think, yeah. isn't she? Kirby. I think she outrandied Randy. Yeah. So what do we? The interesting thing about the new Randys of Screen Four or Fine is that they're now using cameras and specifically this little headset that they use to live stream their lives, right? And as soon as murder started happening in Woodsboro again, they're extremely excited because they are doing that. And the role the cameras have played in Scream throughout the the previous centuries has always been kind of a thing of the killers. Remember Mickey in Scream 2, he was always filming everything. Obviously Roman became a Hollywood director in, in Scream 3. And now we've got these kids who are horror movie nerds, horror obsessed, stab obsessed. And we will talk about the stabathon a little bit later on. <laughs> But now they're filming everything. And it's also something that Gail would do in Scream 1 and 2. And now she's not doing that anymore. She has to learn from the children. What do you think about their role now as the the new journalists in a way? I like the struggle for power. And I think it's it's almost... It's clearly explained by Gail when she mm-hmm. she's like, "Why don't you team up with me? Just this multi generational." And they and they look at her like they don't really need her. They don't need her. No. Just because she was lived it, suddenly they've seen it. They've seen the movies. They've been there. They don't. <laughs> they genuinely are just like, "No, we, we don't need this, and we don't want you. We want Sydney. <laughs> she's our final girl." And I think it clearly says that they hold all the power. It's all about them, and it recenters. The, what is actually a struggle because it would be much easier to focus on Sydney, Gale and Dewey wouldn't it mm-hmm. but actually to bring in these new characters and to make them and fully flesh them out before disposing of them which is exactly what happened and I would like to say that the early going on what you were saying earlier about the brutality of the murders mm-hmm. there is wall to wall gore in one of the, the early murders that takes place of the girl next door and it's literally they go in and the blood spatters the walls and I think that's showing that the kids are levelling up too because it's a new level of gore too. You know, they've got the power and they also have this most spectacular, awful deaths, which is a strange thing to compare, but I think I think it works together in Scream 4. Yeah, totally. I think that scene where all of the kids, all of the randies, all of the geeky nerd kids in Cinema Club are interacting with Gail and Sydney and talking about the rules of modern horror and modern reboots. I think it's such an effective scene because it really does show that generational difference and that we're in a new generation with new rules here. So who do you think is behind the murders? Well, it's a stab fanatic, clearly. Working on less of a shriekwell and, and more of a screamake. Copyrighted terms, by the way. Because all there are now are remakes. Only horror the studio's green light. I think another major thing about the uh, the 2000s in horror and the way in which they became more brutal was because they had to actually compete with stuff that you were seeing on YouTube or stuff that you were mm. seeing on camera phones. And there was this real fear, I think, that kids were able to access genuinely harmful videos or images via YouTube or whatever else. Um, and so it was almost like in comparison to that, horror had to up its game and had to match it. And and that's why we had more found footage movies and we had extra gore and everything had an element of slightly of realism almost as well. And I think in certain way, this movie is sort of dealing with that too, right? This idea that the killer is literally making a movie in this film as well. And they're thinking about how everything everything is going to have that sort of heightened realism because everything is going to be filmed for real. It's kind of in the same way as I think Scream 2 was predated the true crime craze that we're living through now. This in a different way, while it's it's commenting a lot about internet culture and about fame culture and who gets famous, which is 
which is, I think, the essence of true crime in so many ways of publicizing and elevating and becoming obsessed and creating a whole culture around criminals and around specifically around murders and around serial killers. In fiction, in Scream 4, they're kind of looking at that, but also looking at who and how that obsession is created. Does it go from horror movies? And do these kids want to make a horror movie? Not really. Do they just want to document everything that's going on? Do they want to just document it because every content becomes interesting Mm. because it's around something criminal, something serial killer-ish? Well, also, I suppose the other thing about you know this point in time is that reality tv was a huge thing right as well whether it was big brother or whatever else and the simple life the simple life exactly and so this idea that and it is overtly said in by jill towards the end that you don't necessarily have to be good at anything to be famous anymore right you you don't necessarily have to be famous for having a, a particular talent necessarily you could just be famous for you for being in something for being in some content whether it's a tv show or a youtube channel or whatever else so again there is that there's that feeling and it's a little bit you know two slightly older men at this point where's craven and kevin williamson kind of like commenting on the youth of today but i think it's valid as well and i think there's some really interesting things being done with it yeah yeah and i think it's i found it very interesting the other movie setting and i'm talking of course about the stampathon but when you think about the other times that we've seen the characters in Scream movies watching horror movies. Obviously in Scream 1 is when all the all the massacre starts happening, when the action finishes at, at, at Stu's house. And in Scream 2 opens with that wonderful sequence in the cinema watching Stab 1. But here it's Stabathon and it's teenagers in Woodsboro watching the movies that are based, the fictional version based on the stuff that happened in their very, very town. And the two movie geeks are treated like celebrities. When they come up and the light hits them, they are just like Lady Gagaing it all over the place. They're just seeping up the applause, introducing the screenings, like setting out the rules. It's completely, it's showing a totally different approach to movie culture. He's ready to drink every time someone can get a cell phone signal. I'm ready to drink every time someone shuts the refrigerator door and, oh my god, there's the harmless character right behind it. In Scream 1, Randy is desperately trying to get all of his friends to concentrate on the movie and the friends just want to have fun. They want to chat, they want to drink, they want to do 90s kid stuff, right? And in this... Everyone is very like uh, is is concentrating on that film. Everyone is quoting along with it. Mm-hmm. Everyone is fully immersed in the movie. They shout at Gail for getting in the way of the screen at one point. <laughs> it's the polar opposite to the way in which the audience treats watching a horror movie in Scream One or even Scream Two a little yeah. bit. That that audience in Stab, they're kind of all over the place, aren't they? Um, I would be very angry if I was in that Stab screening. I'm like, Shh. but uh, but but in in no this crunchy foods. in this movie they are all absolutely glued to that screen. They know this film word mm-hmm. for word they there's a they, they are all these nerds that have such respect for for horror and for horror they movies they embrace the silliness of horror as well yeah but the power change as well shows that they're the ones in the limelight mm-hmm. while Gail Weathers comes in and positions cameras which is exactly what she did in Scream yes. Yes. she positions a camera right in front of them they just want her to get out of the way meanwhile when she mm-hmm. was in Scream she was welcomed they're like oh my gosh she's here no one cares mm-hmm. yes. about Gail Weathers yes no one can see that she's Gil Weathers doing that. But at the same time, the idea of her, of that character being in, positioning cameras around somewhere where she thinks a massive massacre is going to take place, but for different reasons. Yeah. Well, kind of not. She wants her career back. Yeah. But, but, yeah. Kind, but 
also simultaneously to 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 fix this, you mm-hmm. know, because she they see the pattern, and I I love the fact that she's going around and she gets back to her car and she's so smug, and then gradually those ghost face they look like ghost face cloaks going yes. over the cameras just watching that happen and just being like again seriously and then going back in so it's she's breaking her own rules mm-hmm. so i i love that power from from the, the teenagers are the ones that rule everything and the grown-ups are just kind of hello fellow kidsing <laughs> they really face. are yeah and yeah. especially gail because you know dewey as we mentioned before is the figure with authority now he's a sheriff so he is respected but she isn't she in the previous movies could just waltz in anywhere and gail weathers all over the place but now she she has to put on a, a ghost face mask so nobody will see her she does this little, little funny dance. shuffle little, little dance, dance. Um, when she gets into the party it's like yay i I am also 15. <laughs> Plus. Hello, fellow ghost faces. Yeah. <laughs> Where, yeah, whereas in Scream 1, when she walked into that party, it was like a celeb had just yeah, walked in. Everybody parts. She's they with go, me. I love what you do. I love your show. <laughs> yeah. You know, all the kids. And yeah, Dewey says she's with me, you know, and it's a totally different kind of reaction. Yeah, it's so interesting. Um, should we talk about some of the kills themselves then? Because I think the, the body count is so much bigger. The gore is so much higher. Yes. Um, you know, you feel like in, in the previous movies, there would be that big opening kill. Then there might be quite a gap before the next one. There would be, the, you know, other stuff going on. But this movie, it kind of hits us hard and fast with these great set pieces, doesn't it? Any particular highlights for you guys? There's a lot of taunting. I mm. think particularly um, Alison Bree's the publicist's death is really dramatically different because Ghostface in this one really taunts her both on the phone and then chasing her around like it's a very cat and mouse situation and then when he does murder her i noticed that he got so close so it be it became very gory in a very intimate way where he was really relishing up close just how stabbing her basically Mm. and i found that very um very violent in a completely kind of less bloody way but in a much more brutal way than some of the other kills. And I think it was sort of harkening back to the intimate violence of Scream 1 in a way, Yeah. but just more aggressive. That one really stood out to me because we see a lot of her begging almost. Yeah. The, the one that stands out for me is the cop's death with the knife through the front of his skull. <laughs> yes. Mm. <laughs> like that is a very 2000s that we would not have seen that in a previous Scream film we just would not have seen Ghostface stab someone through the head and I think Wes Craven said that he saw um, that a man had had that happen to him but survived and drove himself to the hospital which is why the cop gets out of the car with the knife in his head and staggers before falling over and I think he says uh, fuck Bruce Willis Um, (laughs) but I think that level of brutality yes it's funny because of how it but it's also horrible and it also mm. requires you understand that that requires force and i think it's yeah. that knowledge of force mm-hmm. is particularly you understand that this ghost face does not have rules for oh i don't just stab people in the chest after you know taunting for a little bit i will literally just kill anyone anywhere Mm. And it also feels like there are certain... Uh, each kill feels like in some way that it's referencing something that came before it too, I think. Like we talked about how the, the opening kill obviously is like feels like a reference to Casey. Mm-hmm. Um, that moment when Alison Bree's character is killed is a little bit like a more brutal version of what happens to Sarah Michelle Gellar, the way she's thrown off the roof at it the is, end yeah. as well. Um, the stabbing in the head of the policeman is kind of like what was teased Scream in Scream. Oh, yes, actually, Scream 2, actually. Yeah, that we isn't even the one it. I was going to say, because I was going to say Dewey getting the knife thrown at his head in Scream mm. 2, which it then 
sort of didn't actually follow through with. Um, but yeah, there were these sort of, I guess that's the other thing about this movie is that it's commenting on reboots cult- and re- remake culture. And there is this feeling that everything is in some way harkening back to what came before it as well. And in a way, that's a very obvious clue to who the killers end up being because the killers end up being, again, two teenagers. Mm. And in a different way related to Sydney, but actually not motivated by Sydney themselves, which I found, which I think is one of the best things about this film is the motivations of the killers. But before we get into that, shall we talk about who they are? Because I think that culture of reboots and remakes also explains the fact that the way that they murder is the way that you know the way that you've described it Mike because it's one of the co-presidents of the cinema club mm-hmm. and Jill and Jill Sydney's niece so this is the first time that our sort of final girl has been the killer right which is a really interesting um, a really interesting twist but yeah in terms of motives for this one it's that Charlie Rory Culkin's character I think he is the pretty much the motiveless killer of the like right as we always get one in each partnership as in like doesn't he just basically want to remake a well a he's movie? kind of the stew of the yes. duo in a way where he's not really a psychopath he's a little bit incelly where he really wants to get with kirby but the minute they start flirting he kills her yeah he's the stew he's the mickey he's the i want to recreate my own real life horror movie because I'm yeah. a film nerd with psychotic tendencies basically right yeah. um, did like his line though about you pay attention to me now like he it's like he's that's fueled him and now he's furious that actually there's this moment you well, you wonder if there's a moment of clarity there for mm-hmm. him where it's like oh you could have had this and now you need to kill her and then he takes that he takes that out on her mm-hmm. four years of classes together you notice me now <laughs> stupid bitch <laughs> It's too late. It's a really disturbing moment. It's horrible. That's a really creepy scene, that Uh moment. I think he's brilliant. Charlie's a really good character. Um, Because, again, a little bit like Scream 1, I think that's a character where you think, yeah, of course it was him. Like He was kind of there on the periphery being quite creepy this entire time, right? But the real surprise comes with Jill, who is Sydney's cousin, who is this like incredibly timid, shy girl, and then uh, basically shows a whole new side of herself, doesn't she, at this moment? Brutal side of herself. (laughs) But but I think we were... (laughs) I think we can describe it as she becomes fully Emma Roberts at this point, yes. which is now her Emma Roberts switches on and basically creates the character that Emma Roberts has now played for the last decade. So to contextualise Emma Roberts a little bit, this is in, this comes out in 2011. Emma Roberts has been acting for a long time, mostly as a child actor, but she is not yet she does not yet have the scream persona that she has now, which she would perfect with her roles on American Horror Story, which you do only a few years later, which is this very vengeful, violent, bitchy type of persona that she plays so, so well. And Jill is the genesis of that. Yeah, she is, she is Emma Roberts being born for Scream Queens <laughs> yes. and American Horror Story. Just this... Comp- this, the sassy gifosity of, of the Emma Robertsness <laughs> is a joy to behold as she just switches. I think there's a the wonderful moment when she pulls the mask off and you just think, mm-hmm. holy... I, I mean, I didn't predict that when I, I first saw it in the cinema. It was genuinely like a, I can't believe they've just done it and I'm basking in this now because it's joyous. You think you had a shitty boyfriend, Sydney? There's one that fucks you, dumps you, and doesn't even make you famous. <laughs> What the fuck, Jill? I loved you! Shut the fuck up already! 
It's wonderful, isn't it? And her motive, let's talk a bit about her motive, mm-hmm. right, as well. Because, yes, you're right, it's not really anything to do with the sort of... It's not really to do with the kind of vengeance storyline to do with Sydney and her mother, I suppose. Although, indirectly, it kind of is. Because she's basically jealous of the fame that Sydney's gotten, right? And she's she jealous wants, of the attention. And she wants that herself. And it's literally that, right? That she's just this... She's just this brat basically who wants to be famous and wants to be the final girl that her cousin got to be she wants to she literally her plan which is kind of exquisite in a way (laughs) she and she wants to engineer herself as the new final girl of woodsboro yes a final girl as a hero which is what the final girl is really but while sydney is you know damaged and suffering because she was a real victim and she you know we see her kind of happy and in control in this film but that's taken what uh 20 years to get to yeah but jill literally um not just engineers everyone's murder brutally kills everyone brutally stabs sydney as well and supposedly we're led to believe watches her die but then also in this amazing scene hurls herself all over the house to injure herself to create this perfect scenario and then positions herself right face face by face she frames her death face to face with sydney the, what's brilliant about it right is that until this point it's kind of following the beats of scream one and it's like this is the first time we see oh what would happen if the killer wins like what would happen if Billy and Stu so close it's so, so close. close what would happen if Billy and Stu had succeeded in their plan they had stabbed each other but not fatally everyone else was dead and they are left as like the heroes that survived or whatever and we actually get to see this played out and what a joy right the final 30 minutes of this film are where we go beyond this traditional final act into Jill's movie basically right it's amazing watching her Billy and Stu herself is brilliant (laughs) like genuinely I love it If, like, being a final girl had, like, an Ikea thing and it would have, like, two, you know, at the start of an Ikea catalogue, there's, like, two people and the, the tools would be a knife, some glass, and she's kind of crossed out the other person and positioning herself, like, running into walls with a ble- Like, she's thought of everything. She takes the hand of a dead body to scratch herself. <laughs> takes some hair out. Yes. And it's all really- and she's screaming as she does it. Like, it's so good. This was the first screen movie that I saw in the cinema. It was the first one that I was able to actually go and see in the, on the big screen. Um, and the the absolute vocal joy of everyone in my screening when I saw Scream 4, uh, particularly this final act with just Jill, uh, with just Emma Roberts on her own, throwing herself around, stabbing herself. People were laughing, they were gasping. It was just she, perfect. She goes full Gone Girl. Yeah, oh, she does. Yeah. Oh, yeah, she does. She She's but like also, the original Gone Girl. Yeah. yeah. But also I do find it really funny that whilst in Scream 1 we needed two teenage boys to do this shit, in Scream just 4 it just takes one teenage girl. <laughs> uh, she, and she pulls it off so much better than anyone she really, she Wins. She almost wins. If only Sydney had actually stuck to the plan and died. <laughs> and later, when she goes into Sydney's ward and just like, you just won't die, will you? <laughs> she so should have shot her in the head. That's the, it, it's just wonderful. That's the thing she forgot. You yeah. always need to shoot them in the head. Yeah. And she and and we get to this point where we think, oh my god, is this it? Has Jill won? Has the killer won for the first time is in Sydney Scream gone? history? Uh, uh, Jill is is wheeled onto a stretcher, you know, into an ambulance. The press are all around her taking her photo and even though she's like half dead she is delighted she's she's got exactly what she wanted you know um but then of course the action continues in the hospital when it turns out oh sydney isn't dead and there's just an amazing final showdown isn't there in the hospital and also that 
conversation she has with Dewey when Dewey lets her know that Sydney might pull through. <laughs> yeah. It's delectable. It's so good. Because <laughs> it's also, it's again, the first time in the Scream franchise that it's done this thing where it's flipped. It's not the whodunit. It's the it's the sort of dramatic irony. It's right? the how they did it. Yeah, it's the we know who's the killer, but the characters don't. And that's the first time it's given it that from that perspective as well, I think, and which it is takes really fun. It, what every Scream has done before, it takes it slightly further. Mm. So we thought the finale of Scream 4 would be at that house where she was but she moved the finale further so we saw a hospital for the first time mm-hmm. because normally in screen films we just see people being wheeled into ambulances credits yeah so mm-hmm. it's suddenly like we're getting extended <laughs> extended screen which actually means scream 2022 i don't know where you go after the hospital where do oh, you go it'll go to like one year later and then someone will wake from a coma and it'll yeah. continue yeah but yeah I, just, that, that brilliant line as well when jill says this was supposed to end in the house this is just silly like yeah. she actually points it out doesn't <laughs> yeah. she but yeah i love it i think it's genius so good and what do you make I mean that that last um, that those last kind of 20-30 minutes are just exquisite fun but what do you think about what happens what goes down when Sydney actually wakes up and Sydney knows what Jill is up to but the other characters don't Sydney's brilliant isn't she because she just entirely forget like she doesn't really worry about the fact that this is her cousin that this is a member of her family or she's just like oh. or a child she's like well I'm up. I'm I'm up and about. This girl needs to die. Basically. It's like, it's and so again, good. we have that Sydney brawl. Yeah. We've left the knife behind. Mm-hmm. We've got oh, like so, we're sticking ooh. fingers oh, in, so in, in stab wounds, which you can then feel because, as we've discussed, Scream loves its sound effects oh. and it's so it suddenly becomes really grewy and physical, mm. which makes it all the better when we have that wonderful moment of clear. Oh, <laughs> oh my God! Clear, clear, clear. Arguably one of the most creative ways to dispose of a killer in the entire Scream franchise. Yeah, yeah amazing. Incredible. Like, such a fun way to sort of reignite Scream for a new generation, I think, this film, isn't it? And Wonderful. then kill the new generation. And then kill the new generation. And it's really a teamwork of Gail and Sydney because Dewey's yes. on the floor having been hit with a bedpan, which actually brings <laughs> him back to standard Dewey-ness yeah. after yes. <laughs> the respect that he has garnered from the previous bits. And it's just the fact that it's Gail and Sydney together yeah. again. And, you know, coming off the back of Scream 3, which really dialed up the comedy, Scream 4 dials up the gore and the horror, but the comedy elements, which have been a a staple of the Scream franchise, are still very much present here. And while Dewey has matured, blossomed into a sheriff, um, there's another comical character, which you brought up a bit earlier, Louise, in Deputy Sheriff Judy. 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 Judy Hicks. Yeah, who's this really fun, because she is the Dewey of old, right? Yes. You know, basically a bit a bit ridiculous. No one really has any actual respect for her. No one remembers her. No one re- yeah, no one really <laughs> notices her and people kind of roll her eyes slash laugh at her, but she takes her job very seriously. And she's clearly a very very good, very wholesome character, mm. but is not taken seriously. She is literally the that that was Dewey in Scream 1, wasn't it? She basically? was a very good question marker of maybe she's the killer though. Yes. When that scene when when uh, she's like, "Oh, I was in Peter Pan with you." And, yeah. and she comes <laughs> out like, of the shadows. I don't remember. And she's this ominous thing and obviously we're meant to go ooh killer yeah ooh because she th- that would have been equally fun mm-hmm. almost to have it to have it be her but at the same time it's nice for her to continue to be Dewey constantly mm. through mm-hmm. to, for her to actually be a good person 
And we we will see her again in Scream 2022. Yes. Miley Shelton is reprising the role. Yes. I'm excited I'm, to see what happens to Deputy Judy. I'm really intrigued. This is, you know, this is a bit of a sad prediction, but I almost wonder if at this point Dewey and Gail have divorced and he's going to be married to Judy. Interesting. <laughs> Anna, you what? look so angry. Yeah. Those cakes Why don't just you kept... believe in love, Mike? <laughs> <laughs> I think... Gail yeah. has left town since Scream 4. I think she's left Dewey and she's gone off to pursue a career. And I think Dewey's ended up with Judy. That's my prediction. I think I think you might be right. Mm. The first time I saw the trailer, I thought, if Judy's here, I wonder if she eventually got what she wanted, which was Dewey. I refuse to believe it. And also, <laughs> I think that Gail is very happy in Woodsboro and she has an extremely successful true crime podcast. Okay. okay yeah. Maybe. I think Maybe. Gail Weathers is a podcaster now. Yeah. That's my prediction yeah, for Scream 2022. Very possibly. That's very good. So it's time for our awards now that we have been regularly handing out to the most disgusting kills and cameos, etc. So it's time for the Screamies for Scream 4. So, scariest moment, Mike. Oh, this is an interesting one. Scariest moment. I think for me, we touched upon it already, but just a really kind of quite brief and understated moment. But the moment when Charlie is tied to the chair resembling Steve in Mm. the opening scene of Scream 1 and we think he's been killed or he's the victim, Kirby goes outside to save him, and then he stabs her brutally in this way that, like you said, Louise, he mentions this, oh, you know, now you like me? now You know, mm-hmm. like in this kind of horrible, slightly incelly way. And because I love Kirby as a character so much, there was just something about that moment of brutality that really got me. I think that's a, a creepy moment in a in a sort of insidious way. Do you know what I mean? I think mine would be that moment, but not the moment where he stabs Kirby, but the moment just before. So not the violence, but Kirby rushing to untie him. Mm. It's the looking around thinking, is Ghostface going to be behind me? Is Ghostface going to pop off around a bush? Like, where is he? The tension of her succeeding in saving this guy which Casey didn't manage to do with in the first movie is I found kind of the, the most scary moment. Yes. I think I'm going to go for when Ghostface says, I'm not in your... I didn't say I was in your closet. So I think that was a lovely tease. And then we get that horrible shot from afar. I think the idea of looking at Ghostface attacking someone through a window when you can't help, Mm -hmm. I think that is scary. I think that's probably my, my scariest moment. And it probably leads us nicely to best kill. It's your best kill, Anna. Okay, so this is a little bit of a cheat. Because she doesn't die. Uh Mm -hmm. But I'm going to go with the attempted kill of Sydney. Because for a brief moment there, when you're watching Scream 4 for the very first time, you think, they actually did kill Sydney. And it's such a dramatic death as well. It's so prolonged and it's so meaningful because you've been with this character for 20 years now. To see her die, to see her die at the hands of a family member, to see her die at the hands of a teenage girl who is this proto Sydney, it's got a whole number of like very weird layers, and and obviously Nev Campbell kind of performing that scene is it just hits in the fields in a different way. It just carries more baggage than anyone else, doesn't it? Yeah, it hurts. It, it does hurts. hurt. Um, I think just for the sheer amount of gore, I think I'd go with the character of. Olivia 
who is the girl who you've just mentioned, Louise, in your best scare when the killer is hiding in the closet and he stabs her to death in her bedroom. And you mentioned this already, but that bedroom scene, it's like the scene when Johnny Depp is sucked into the bed in A Nightmare (laughs) on Elm Street, right, where the entire bedroom is absolutely coated in blood. Um, Again, it's just it's this feeling that this movie's not messing around, (laughs) like you know, and it's quite early on. I think it's a great set piece. I think my best kill is clear. I think that, that that's too good. Yes. It's just the fr- because it's not really a kill, though, is it? It's almost a kill because then they have to shoot her in the head afterwards because that's she right. is the killer. But that as a that as a way of uh, flooring Jill is a particularly <laughs> good one. Now, normally, what happens when we t- go through the screamies is we talk about our best new character. But actually, we all know that our best new character in Scream Four is Kirby, right? Yeah. yeah. Have you, wait, have you taken away the fun of us counting done and saying the same? I have. Yeah. I, I've mixed it up. I've, I've sw- we can't be too predictable. We've got to change the rules. We've got to change, the rules. Got to change yeah. the rules. Yeah. It's a new decade. New yeah. rules. New rules. Yeah. We all just agree. I mean, I unless I you want to rebel and not agree. I kind of want to say a different character just to be a contrarian. I know. I Are you going do- to? I think I'm going to go with Charlie. Oh. oh well, I would say yeah. I, I would say shout out to Jill as well. Yeah, of because, course. But, but yeah. only Jill in the last like thirty minutes of yeah. the movie. Emma Roberts, the Jill. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You see, I find Charlie very entertaining to watch, especially his back and forth with Kirby. And as mm. much as I love Kirby and obviously relate to kill to Kirby quite a lot, um, I I love. I just, I just love how he teases that like psychotic movie nerd vibe yeah. throughout the entire film. You can see him be a murderer. You don't necessarily suspect him, but it's always there. In so a, if you rewatch it, he's creepy as hell. In a different way from Billy. Yes. Which is fun. Yeah. Because you're like, well, it could be him, but Billy was like that. But Billy was a little bit different, so maybe mm-hmm. it's not him. Best cameo. Yeah, there's less. There's definitely less cameos in this than there are in Scream Three, for example, aren't there? Um, it was nice to see Anna Paquin and Kristen Bell pop up in the yeah. opening scene, wasn't it? That's that was quite a fun cameo. I think my fun cameo is actually Robert Rodriguez. Oh yeah, because uh, yeah, yeah. for the first time we get to see his name on the stab footage. Exactly, and I get such a big whoop. And I thought that was that was really fun. I mean, he obviously doesn't pop up himself, but his name does, and I think it it it's another kind of movie nod, a movie reference. And obviously, he directed the Faculty based on Kevin Williamson's script, so they're friends. Nice. Yeah, I'm going to shout out to the first Stab movies cameo <laughs> in the Stabathon. That's mine. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Uh, finally, what is our favorite Sydney moment from Scream Four? Mm-hmm. Uh, you forgot the number one rule of reboots, Jill. Don't fuck with the original. Oh, so classic Sydney. <laughs> Gail and Dewey, what was their best moment? When Gail goes up to the front of the press conference and asks the question, and Dewey just covers up the mic and just says, Later, hon. <laughs> yeah. In yes. front of everyone. <laughs> yeah. I'd go with that too. That's very good because it's such a Dewey kind of response and it's such a Gale Dewey dynamic, isn't it? It's yeah. great. It's the only moment of that pure dynamic because the rest of the time they're kind of arguing over sort of her role in his investigation, which mm-hmm. he limits. Okay, guys. So for the last time, we get to make our predictions for Scream 2022. Mm. Now, in relation to Scream 4, do you think we'll see the return of any f- particular fan favourites? Like, for instance, Kirby, who we didn't see die. Mike? It's true, isn't it? We see her get stabbed, I think, in the stomach, and then there's no mention for the rest of the film, is there, as mm. to whether or not she's dead. 
I'd love to see Kirby come back. I'm sure lots of fans would love to see Kirby come back. I don't think Hayden Panettiere is currently on the cast list, if you look it up, but they might be keeping it a secret, right? So who knows? That would be awesome to see her come back. We've already talked about uh, in our first discussion how we'd love to see somebody like Stu come back. I'm still holding up a Stu. In fact, what if Stu comes back, Matthew Lillard comes back, and he's joined forces with Kirby? (laughs) And they're the killers. Yes. And it's like intergenerational murder vibes. Love it. Kirby joins forces with the pickled gherkin that is stew. Well, only one more week to go and we'll find out how right or wrong we were. Guys, I cannot believe it. We've done it. We've made our way through each of the four Scream movies and only one Scream movie remains. That's the brand new Scream coming to cinemas in one week's time. Until then, uh, let us know where people can find you and more of your work. Anna? You can follow me on Twitter at Anna B. Demented. That's where I post all of my appearances on podcasts, on Wittertainment, on other BBC radio shows. And you can also follow my weekly horror podcast, The Final Girls, and you can subscribe to that and find it wherever you find and listen to your podcasts. I also do quite a bit of freelance writing, so I try to post all my articles on my Twitter. And Louise. You can find me on Twitter at shiny underscore demon, where, like Anna, you can hopefully find my links, if I can remember to put them there, to places like BBC Radio 3's Sound of Gaming, where I go on a monthly journey through the best gaming soundtracks. And I also write about horror and games for places like Games Radar, Tech for T3, and things for NME as well. And you can occasionally find me on both The Evolution of Horror and Final Girls. And I produce a weekly horror film discussion podcast called The Evolution of Horror. And you can find that wherever you get your podcasts. Hello Sydney is produced by Mike Munzer and Anna Bogotskaya for Paramount Pictures. The show is hosted by Louise Blaine, Mike Munzer and Anna Bogotskaya. And it's edited by Mike Munzer. Celebrate the 25th anniversary of Scream in 4K, available to download and keep on Apple. Scream 4 from 2011 was directed by Wes Craven and it's produced by Dimension Films, Corvax Corax Productions, Outer Banks Entertainment, The Weinstein Company, Midnight Entertainment and Prime Focus.